and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change, and I am your host. I'm here every two weeks with you, although lately you may have noticed we have been on a little more. We have a lot of stuff in the works. We have senior fellows who are taking over the podcast and either talking to other leaders in the field or having discussions among themselves like today. So we are having a few more podcasts lately and we hope you are all enjoying it. You can stay on top of all of this by subscribing at Spotify, Stitcher, or iTunes, or just keeping your eye on ehn.org where we keep all of these podcasts archived. We rely on support, and one of those supporters is Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, on today's show, as I said, senior fellows are taking over. Anjali Hall, a PhD student and Ford pre-doctoral fellow in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Tatiana Tots-Height, a doctoral candidate in the Agriculture and Extension Education Program at NC State University, sit down together and have a conversation about Black histories and visions of urban planning. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. My name is Tatiana Hyde, but I go by Tots for short, and I am a doctoral candidate in agriculture and extension education at North Carolina State University, uh, where I also teach environmental ethics in the interdisciplinary studies department. Hey, everyone. I'm Anjali. I'm an urban planner from Buffalo, New York, and I'm currently a PhD student at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. And we are both part of the third cohort of fellows in the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice program. We are the only urban planners in our cohort of fellows. So we decided to sit down and talk about how we came to the field. And in particular, we wanted to think about histories of planning and what histories are amplified and obscured in planning. And to also share our visions for the future of the field and what it could look like in particular to center the histories, lived experiences, ideas, and aspirations of black communities in planning. All right, so today we're doing a podcast. We're calling it Exploring Migration, Black Geographies and Environmental Justice. Um, both of us are Agents of Change Fellows, and I think we got partnered together because we both, I mean, everybody has an interest in, in environmental justice, obviously, as part of the fellowship, but we both happen to be urban planners. I think we're the only two urban planners in the group, so uh, at least for this cohort. So. Um, Given that being the case, I think uh, it sort of naturally came that uh, what it seemed like our overlapping interests were, were, around, were around Black geographies and environmental justice and what does that mean um, for our people. So to start out, we want to just talk about, you know, how do we, what is urban planning? How do we come to urban planning um, before we sort of get into more of the meat just so that we can sort of set the stage for you all? Um, so what do you want to, do you want to describe urban planning? Do you want me to give my take and then you give yours? What do you want to do? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to give what I think is like maybe the textbook definition. And I think we can elaborate on that. I think generally people think of urban planning and it's sort of like mundane details of zoning and development control and land use regulation. 
I think more generally urban planning could be understood as sort of the preparation of plans and policies and programs to sort of guide the development and, and regulation and management of, of neighborhoods, cities, towns, regions, uh, in an attempt to sort of guide how, how resources are distributed uh, and, and planned out, such as housing, green space, roads. Um, but what's your take? How do you understand urban planning? Yeah, I, I, I do like to, to describe it to people as just um, who, the, the folks who plan out what communities looks like. And that could be either on a neighborhood level, that could be uh, on a city level, it could be counties, it could be regional, it could be national. Um, and there's just so many different things that you can do with it. There's so many different emphasis areas. You have people who focus on historic preservation, people who focus on water, people who focus on parks. Um, and only do that, or people who, yes, only do zoning, and that's like the most boring level <laughs> important, but it's like the most boring part that you can do. Um, but yeah, I think most people haven't even heard of it, and a lot of times I say, you know, oh, I'm a planner, people think that I'm planning events, and I'm like, no, not at all. Um, planning space, planning where people live to make sure that it's um, healthy and safe. Yeah, I agree. When I tell most people that I'm a planner, they're like, they don't know what that is, but when I explain it to them, they're like, oh, obviously that's, that's really important. Like, yeah. and, and that's for me, how I sort of came to planning is I didn't have a name for it, but um, I think growing, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, one of the most racially segregated cities in the United States. And I grew up in a, in a multiracial household. And so uh, I had my father's black, my mother's white. They both were born and raised in Buffalo, but in very different neighborhoods. And so growing up and sort of traveling to visit um, my family on, on both sides, I observed very clearly differences in sort of built environment and what was available in, in different neighborhoods across the city and that it was very racially segregated. And I was just curious as to why is this the case? And, and it wasn't until I got to college where I started to take a couple of classes in urban studies or on sort of the, the history of the, of the US on with a focus on race that I came to start to understand that like the conditions in our neighborhoods and cities were like, didn't just happen by chance. They were often the result of policy, often with the intention to discriminate, particularly against Black communities and deprive communities of the resources they need to, to, to thrive. And, and so I was like, well, okay, what do, what do you do about this? And when I understood that there was this field that's focused on trying to intentionally plan communities, I was like, oh, this is, this is great because we're talking about the material conditions of people's everyday lives and we're talking about the the places where we live and work and interact with on a daily basis so this is something that's just really grounded in just everyday life and that was really appealing to me but yeah. what about you sort of how did you come to planning and environmental justice well I know the audience can't see me but I'm just like nodding when you're talking so that was super interesting not exactly what happened in my case but still very very interesting um for me, I had a very zigzaggy path to get there. Um, I, you know, I was studying natural resources in undergrad. And then, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what I could do with that. I was interested in doing something environmentally speaking. I had uh, had a trip down to New Orleans that I was thinking back on as some sustainable um, redevelopment that they were doing post Katrina um, and these, you know, environmentally uh, friendly buildings, you know, LEED certified and all of this stuff and um, 
and uh, flood proof buildings that they were doing down there. And I was like, hmm, you know, this seems like something they're doing to, to, to better the community. It's environmental. How can I get into this? And I thought architecture. Um, and I had spoken to someone about architecture and then, you know, she was like, mm, you know, this, you're, you're, you're coming at it the wrong, it sounds like what you want to do is more, you know, community impact and that kind of thing. And so she introduced me to the, this was the Dean of the College of Architecture, introduced me to the concept of urban planning. And so I declared a minor in it, thought it was really interesting with studying stuff around homelessness and um, all sorts of community issues. And then, um, you know, later when I was figuring out what I wanted to do a master's in, I was like, you know, this is really the only thing that that I think is interesting right for me right now is is around is, is this urban planning and studying more of that and I was really wanting to um study not only environmental justice but also you know meeting facilitation how do you do collective uh processes and um come into consensus around what you want in your communities and that kind of thing and so that's what I did but um I do think it's important to say too just with this whole urban planning thing is that because I know you mentioned, you know, th these things didn't just happen by chance. And that's sort of why the, the field came to be is because things were sort of happening. There was no intentionality around, you know, where things were and it was causing um, issues for people in their health. And so, um, you know, planning comes out of things like uh, three different architecture, um, public health, and then social work. And so even us within this Face of the agents of change and so many people who are interested in that public health piece, planning is a part of that too, because we had these issues where you had stuff like uh, a factory near somebody's house and what is it doing for their health and, and realizing that that's not good for people. Um, and so some people sort of approach planning from some of that, more of that public health space, which I think is really where environmental justice sits. Um, some people do approach it more from the built environment piece and you can do stuff about, you know, buildings and structures and roads and I'm not really in that space at all. Um, then, unless you're talking about green infrastructure, I've been a little bit engaged in conversations around green infrastructure um, for the purposes of environmental justice, though. And then some people who focus on more of that uh, sort of social work piece and community well-being and community betterment, um, and and all are important and valid spaces. Um, but there's just you know so many different perspectives that you could come from. Yeah, yeah, that that's really I think that's really important context. You're absolutely right. Like the field did come about particularly um, when cities were first industrializing and really starting to develop. Uh, around the world and particularly well in 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 this case in Europe and the United States and with a focus on you mentioned factories and pollution also like sewage like flowing into streets and trying to better manage uh, development in a way that would promote people's health and safety and I think that's what's interesting about that is that is definitely a through line through planning history of sort of using the idea of promoting public health and safety as sort of the justification for um, interventions by governments into the planning and development of areas to justify things like zoning, to separate different types of land uses, in some cases to justify the, the demolition of buildings and neighborhoods and propose to, to redevelop areas. It's often through this rationale of it's in the interest of public health and safety and at the same time, while that seems like a, a good and idealistic thing, that that logic of health has also, we can't separate that from a history of racial discrimination. And in some ways, when you have uh, marginalized groups, uh, such as Black people, such as immigrants, other groups that were seen as sort of undesirables, 
by society for a variety of reasons. Often the, the areas that they live because they were uh, prevented from opportunities and so often lived in poverty and so lived in conditions that were deemed by people to be unhealthy and then sort of that is used as a pretext to justify interventions into the place uh, neighborhoods where marginalized groups live. And mm -hmm. so I think while it's true that the history of planning is very much tied to public health, it's also true that that has been a history that has brought about really important advancements in how we live that have extended our life expectancy, but it's also been used in ways that have perpetuated harm upon marginalized groups in society. Right, because whose voices get to be involved in those decision-making processes and what's, you know, uh, how, how, who's getting to say what makes the community healthy and what makes it healthy and what makes the community safe, who's getting to say what changes need to be made to, to better the community. And that's really what environmental justice is about too, you know, making sure that people have um, agency over land use decisions in their community. And so if you have, you know, these outsiders or the man or whoever, <laughs> the white man specifically, you know, coming in and saying, um, you know, this is, you know, we need to sort of start over and demolish or whatever without sort of listening to the community and what they're saying they want, that's a problem. Um, and, and, and let's acknowledge who's the power structures and whose decisions made those communities that way in the first place, which I think is a great segue into our book uh, that we wanted to sort of bring, not our book, but the book that we want to use to frame this conversation, um, The Warmth of Other Sun. Uh, super long book. Uh, I think this book is like over 600 pages. It's by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, and it's about the Great Migration, which if you have not heard about the Great Migration, it basically talks about um, Black people um, moving from the South and, and migrating into other uh, parts of the United States. Um, and so this sort of is a good historical context for um, where Black folks have settled, where, you know, folks came from and moved to and on what routes. You know, she talks about all of that. She's done all these interviews with, with different people who participated in the Great Migration, um, which at the time people didn't realize it was a Great Migration because it was happening sort of slowly and over time, but then realized that over these couple of decades that, um, that you know, Black people have just been moving out of the South in droves and then settling in other cities um, throughout the United States. And so what does that mean for development patterns and how and where people went and what experiences that they had? So it's a really great book. It's really narrative. So it's, even though there's a lot of research that went into it and like interviews and all of that, it reads like a book. It reads like a novel, which I particularly love because I think it makes it super accessible for folks who are not academic. Um, and uh, so we just thought that it would be a great discussion for the implications in terms of what, what does history mean for planning today? What do these historical um, occurrences mean for what we're dealing with now? And we need to think about how that history and what happened might impact what we're doing in our work as planners or environmental justice practitioners uh, today. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, I'll just say that I think, I don't know about you, but in my, in my professional planning education, there wasn't a lot of focus on history. The idea of planning as a field is you're often focused on 
anticipating and, and preparing for the future of a community. And the focus is on sort of looking ahead rather than looking back. And there's, there's a lot of problems when you don't look to history, um, often because you're, you're likely to repeat uh, similar mistakes or you're likely to misdiagnose problems that you're seeing in the present day to not understand where they come from and to develop solutions that are often short-sighted or ineffective at best and, and really harmful at, at worst. And what I think is really interesting about this book is, is as you mentioned, it's covering the Great Migration, which is roughly dated from like 1915 to 1970. So covering a large part of the 20th century during, with a lot, during which a lot of um, things in planning history and in, in sort of how we understand the United States today um, occurred. And, and, and what you see through these personal narratives that, the, that Wilkerson documents uh, over the course of this time period is it allows you to really look at how multiple forces are shaping people's lives, are shaping the development of places. And, and what I appreciate about that is it, it, it allows for complexity that, that manifests in people's lives. Whereas often when we do talk about history and planning, we might focus on one particular time period or one particular policy. And we sort of focus on that in a narrow lens and we ignore that there were multiple things happening at the time. So for example, in the time period that Isabel Wilkerson covers in this book that, that encompasses the Great Migration, this is something that, for example, predated uh, redlining, which is a policy that is often talked about, especially in the last few years. So the Great Migration was happening before we had redlining, and, and we see in this book how Black people who were moving from the South often to Northern and Midwestern cities are already encountering housing discrimination and being prevented from buying or renting homes in particular neighborhoods decades before you have a redlining policy. Right. And then you see how um, this migration continues well after redlining, which is sort of dated roughly from, I think, beginning in the 1930s and then is eliminated with the Fair Housing Act. But even after that, um, Black people are still encountering housing discrimination. And so with this really longer history, it allow, it cautions us to just look at a policy like redlining and to say, oh, that caused housing discrimination or that caused segregation of neighborhoods. And it forces us to broaden that perspective. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yes, <laughs> is my first thought on that. But yeah, I think too often, it seems like a chicken and an egg sort of situation. Um, and or, or even some people assuming that something is the egg and then this is something else is the chicken. But really that policy, the redlining policies were just policies that reinforced what were already the social conditions of the time. Um, and there's a lot of different uh, narratives and stories that get told about what this housing discrimination situation looked like in the book. You know, we have people who are moving from Southern states they come to, to northern cities and then, you know, they're trying to find somewhere to live and people just will not rent to them. Um, situation where somebody might not realize, you know, that you're Black when they're talking to you ahead of time and they realize that you are and then, oh, all of a sudden the, the space is no longer available. 
or people having to find a proxy um, to buy some something for them so that they can so they can move into an area. Um, people talking about moving into an area, buying something into an area, and then all of the white folks just leaving immediately and leaving, you know, um, you know, all of the just the black people, the people of color behind, and really. Uh, none of that had any policy associated with it. It was just people's, uh, you know, mindsets and their ways of operating that were that were uh, putting those conditions forward. And, uh, you know, it's really unfortunate because then you leave, it's, it's, it's super easy to target communities and to not invest in them or to target certain groups when they're all in one space. And so then you had these landlords who were not investing in their buildings, not investing in their properties of where you had mostly black folks living because they knew that they didn't have to. Black folks didn't have any other choice of where to live because they were so limited in their opportunities of where to live because nobody wanted them around. And, you know, it was really unfortunate too because these folks were coming from the South. They're thinking they're going to the promised land, the North, oh, yay. And then they're still experiencing racism, but just in a, in a different way, in a, in a more covert way than they have been experiencing it before. Um, and in some ways that being more sinister than what they had experienced before um, and, and, and how those folks are really disheartened by those experiences. But it didn't take any official policies for them to have those experiences. And um, with the redlining conversation, you know, people tend to yeah point to that as, as this example of um you know this was the problem this was the only problem you know everybody wants to read what's the book the color um, of law by richard rothstein yes the color of law like all planners have to read the color of law how about planners read the warmth of other suns how about planners read some of these other books that talk about um historical contexts that are more broad than just this one I hate to bring in another book, but I just finished this book called Medical Apartheid. Mm -hmm. um, Harry Washington. Yes. And she talks about how people always point to just the Tuskegee experiments as, oh, Black folks don't trust in medical scientists or don't trust in um, in doctors and all of this because of the Tuskegee experiments. And she's like, mm -mm. it was all of this other stuff is much more broad than that. This had been a pattern of experimentation. This had been a pattern of this and that. And I feel like it's the same <laughs> with this concept. People are wanting to focus and say all of it is just because of this one thing when really there were so many other things going on at the same time. And it was all of it working together over time. I think that's a great, that's a great example. And it, and it ignores the reality of like the, the, the root cause is racism mm -hmm. is, is the cause here. And it takes different forms over time and it adapts over time and to focus on a specific policy or a specific program, it, it allows you to ignore that. I think what it also means is so for with the case of headlining, cause I think not just in planning, but in public health, this is um, a policy that has gotten a lot of attention in the last few years, largely due to the fact that these redlining maps from the 1930s have recently been digitized and are available to freely uh, download from a website. And so what that has enabled a lot of researchers to do is to conduct these analyses where they sort of compare how uh, neighborhoods were classified based on redlining, where they classified as a risky neighborhood or a neighborhood that was good for investment, and to compare that to a bunch of present-day outcomes to say, look, uh, redline neighborhoods uh, still have these effects today. And in my mind, I think there's some, some issues with that because what you're really saying is 
neighborhoods where black people, especially and people of color more generally, um, are repeatedly exposed to a concentration of environmental harms or other things that are bad for health or, or bad for other outcomes that we find important. And it's, it's, is it about redlining specifically or is it about an enduring association between race and place that takes a bunch of different forms? And I think the concern is, to, is that to focus so much on redlining while that has brought a lot more attention to history and has brought attention to a policy that is important, if you focus on that policy in isolation, what it means is that you might develop recommendations that say, okay, well, let's do reverse redlining, which is something that people have actually proposed where they say, okay, let's focus on the neighborhoods that were deprived of investment and now let's concentrate investment in those areas. And on its face, that might seem like, oh, that's a good uh, solution. But as scholars such as Kianga Yamada-Taylor has talked about in her recent book, Race for Profit, she talks about this idea of predatory inclusion, which is to say that if you simply try to include uh, groups that have been previously excluded from accessing certain um, benefits that that is not necessarily a solution because they can be discriminated against in more insidious ways and that um, their inclusion in a structure that previously excluded them is likely benefiting groups that are already well off more so than it's benefiting those groups and and so I and then as we're seeing right now with gentrification happening in a lot of cities if you focus on concentrating investment in neighborhoods that were previously deprived of investment, then in, if without other policies in place, that sort of creates conditions for gentrification and could actually push out those communities and it doesn't benefit them. And so I think by looking at these longer histories and by understanding like in the case, in this case that spatial racism takes a lot of different forms, it challenges us to develop solutions that um, are, can actually address the root causes of problems better. Yeah, I think addressing the root cause is definitely going to be what we need to do. But so often people just want to do what is what they see as the quickest, what they see as the easiest, what seems like the most accessible. Addressing root causes, actually getting at systems of oppression is going to be work that takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of mindset changes. And just changing a policy is not changing a mindset. And the problem with just my my opinion, with just addressing policy is that you can take out one policy and then another one will just pop up to replace it. Um, it's just like the concepts in the new Jim Crow, like you stop doing one policy, but then another policy just comes behind it. Um, it's also my issue with just the idea of reform, like we need more than that, because, um, you know, policies don't change people. Policies just change what's in the record, what's on the books. Um, we need to get at, you know, what's underlying that and how can we address, you know, the deeper issues. It's so easy to just do something on paper and then make people think that something's actually changed when it turns out that actually nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And you can it, you can easily, like I said, take out one policy and then three different policies that do the same thing but with a different name or in a different way come up behind it. And so that's what I think is to the issue with just looking at you know this one policy singularly is that there's so much more going on around that. 
And it's so easy to just duplicate the same harms through a different policy than that one. So you need to really look at what was driving that. Why was that allowed to be in place? What are the systems of power that allowed that to happen? Um, and, you know, some people also have issues with, you know, I had a student, and I, I teach environmental ethics, and I had a student who um, we're talking about environmental issues, and the student is like, why, why does racism keep coming up? <laughs> why does this, why does this keep getting brought into the conversation? It was my students too, which I really appreciated. But, you know, he came me after class, why does this keep getting brought up? I feel like we're conflating issues. I feel like we're bringing in stuff that doesn't have anything to do with this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but it actually has a lot to do with this. You cannot pretend like things exist in a vacuum. You have to acknowledge that there are overlapping things at play here. And you have to be ready to, to understand that the same racism that is addressing, you know, that is that is harming how things function in agriculture, that is harming what's going on in our housing systems, that is uh, causing discrimination in terms of um, uh, energy, that is causing discrimination in terms of, you know, how are people experiencing uh, climate change, all of these things. It's the same racism that is causing all of these things. We have to be ready to talk about it. It cannot be the elephant in the room. I hate to break it to you that these things that you don't think are related are actually related, and we're not going to be able to cause, you know, to uh, induce any real change on this if we don't acknowledge that. But yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I think I really appreciate this point about how racism is a fundamental cause. You can't ignore it. I think, I think what I wish more people understood is when we emphasize the need to understand racism, in my mind, it's not only a conversation about the ways in which Black people and other people of color have been uh, disproportionately targeted, uh, harmed, uh, sort of uh, been set up in conditions for like premature death making, essentially. It's also a conversation about how racism, the, the logic and practice of racism erodes the, the political will to engage in collective action. It, it erodes the, the, the will to have government more involved. This is also a conversation about if we want to understand, for example, in the United States, why we have a government and why we have so few social safety nets, why we have so few protections, why we have so few regulations of not only environmental, um, environment related to environmental issues, but just more generally, why it's so hard to support more government intervention, whether it's in a pandemic, whether it's related to uh, disasters. For me, it's related to racism because it creates a logic that says some people are disposable, some people um, don't matter, that that we don't have to, uh, we don't need each other in society, that we're not interdependent, that we can separate ourselves and we can be exclusionary and that that is totally fine and, and works out. And that's just not the case at all. We, we are fundamentally inter interdependent as a society. And we need stronger, we need more collective action. We need people working together, whether it's in communities at the level of government at all levels. We need uh, action that's happening on a broader scale, especially to address a lot of the, the 
the environmental and health crises that we're confronting today. And I think when we focus on racism, it helps us understand why we don't see a stronger government response to certain environmental health crises, why we think it's appropriate to have um, pollution and we enable certain things because we can just concentrate it in certain communities that are deemed disposable. But if we, if we didn't deem any communities disposable, then it would be hard to justify certain activities that cause a lot of pollution and environmental harm because we'd be like, well, where can we put these things? We can't put them anywhere because uh, there's, no, there's no people who are disposable. There's, there's nobody who we can sort of um, write off and, and it would change our logic and how we approach things, I think. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. Uh, and I think that there is no harm in understanding that everyone has value. Right now, there is a harm in the way that we're currently doing things. And I, some people seem to be threatened by the idea of putting people on a more equal standing with one another but really no one gets harmed in that process. And I think that's something that needs to be acknowledged. Maybe you do have to share in the wealth, maybe you have to share in the power, but no one is actually harmed through that process. Um, but, but what you're talking about, like being ready to, to address racism and um, environmental racism and all of that stuff, um, at, a, at a broader scale, do you feel like you were adequately prepared to do that with what you learned in your planning program? Oh, no, absolutely not. And I think there's two ways in which I feel like my planning education and from what I understand about um, other planning programs and other people who are in this field and how we're trained just generally, I think one thing is we don't, in a lot of planning programs, there's not the, the literacy around race and racism racism more specifically, particularly spatial racism. There, there are not a lot of um, faculty, there are not a lot of professional planners who are equipped to, to talk about these things and understand these things, have the historical context, have, have that understanding. And I think it's also a conversation that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So it's further sort of um, marginalized in a lot of at least planning spaces I've been a part of. I think the other way in which I think training and education falls short is what we're ultimately talking about is a need to shift power and to build power. And in my mind, some of that work has to happen through organizing. And I think that in some ways, like we are not equipped to really understand that planning is a fundamentally political activity and that it is a really a conversation about power. It's not some neutral technocratic exercise and just collecting and analyzing data and sort of uh, preparing a plan. It's actually really about, well, what are the types of development patterns and investments that are seen as legitimate, that are seen as beneficial? As we said before, that planning is often framed as an exercise in promoting public health and safety. What is less explicit is that planning is really guided by protection of property values and increasing property values and often increasing uh, profits for whether it's uh, landowners in the form of residential landowners, like homeowners, business owners. Um, and so I think if we had um, better training in how to think about racism, and if we had a better understanding that planning is really political, and that means that maybe 
planners need to become organizers sometimes, or we need to look to organizers and, and people engaged in social movements to sort of better understand kind of where we should be prioritizing. I think those would be steps in the right direction. But I'm curious, what, what do you think about <laughs> reflecting? I think we get a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> You get a lot because I, in my planning program at least, I think they tried to tell us this point several times that that planners are supposed to be neutral, that planners are not the ones making any decisions, um, that planners are not advocates. I also think that in my experience, then working as a planner after you know having finished my master's, that. Um, organizers, community organizers are often seen as the pain in your side. You know, you're trying to do something at a city council meeting or whatever, and then somebody's organized a group of people to show up <laughs> and uh, counter whatever it is that you're trying to do or come and or they're calling you and giving you a hard time or whatever, or you're, you know, organizing meetings and everybody's arguing or hating the government and giving all this negative feedback that is not seen as a relationship, it's seen as a I don't know what they're like a antagonist. I don't know what to say on that. But like it's just like they're an enemy. You know, it's not um it's not any sort of symbiosis there. It's just like, you know, there's us and then there's them. So I think a lot of people would, would push back on that. I would not push back on that. But I could just sense, like, because of some of the implicit and explicit language that I've gotten around what the planner's role is, I feel like there would be so many people who might push back. But yeah, I don't think that there is an, at least in my experience, there hasn't been an understanding of race and racism too much. Like, we had five faculty in my department um, when I was in my program. Um, one of them was like, really into GIS and that kind of thing. And so that was pretty much that. One of them was land use, but it was not any sort of, nothing with spatial racism came up as a part of those that land use discussion. We had a transportation person not focusing. There's a lot to be said with transportation and racism, but there was not coming from that particular person. We had um, somebody who was really into like environment, natural resources, really hard on the ecology piece and like did remote sensing and that kind of stuff. We had one person who was really looking at anything with um, communities and I think race and racism because they did um, Latino quality of life. <laughs> and that person was my thesis advisor. <laughs> that, and so I was doing black quality of life. Um, but it was still quality of life. So we were able to like, you know, coalesce on that. But um, so he was the only person. So I got snippets and like, I took a class planning in developing countries. And, you know, he was from Nicaragua and would, you know, talk about uh, his experiences planning in Nicaragua and, and in hearing about just like the racism of, of um, countries like the US thinking that they're giving aid to other countries and actually screwing them. So I got bits of that. Um, from him and his work, but even that, I mean, it was really just that one class, anything else that I got from him on that was just because I was able to work with him one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't through the coursework and through the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, I will say in my master's program in urban planning, we did have one course that was called race, class, and gender. Although I will say it was mostly about race and class. 
Mm -hmm. Let's talk about gender. Um, it was an elective course, however, so it was not, it was not required. And outside of that, there were no, there were, in our, in our core courses, this was not seen in, in our core land use course, in our core economic development planning course. This is not seen, this is maybe a topic that gets briefly touched on in like one of the last weeks of the class where it's like, oh, let's talk now about some current day issues. Let's have a week on like climate change and how that's affecting things and have a week on like um, inequality. And so it's sort of seen as something that's as tangential, not, not at the center. And, and even in, in our core planning history class in my master's program there, I think we had like a part of a day where the instructor very briefly talked about the great migration and he was afraid to say black. Like he was, he kept saying saying African-American and he was like, like really kind of like his voice, you could tell he was like nervous to even just say that like mm-hmm. deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and again, that was like, maybe like a part of a day in a semester long course and outside of it. And so we did talk about the great migration, we, but we talked about it very briefly. And again, we talked about it in a way, <laughs> which I think is always interesting that often when people talk about the great migration and they talk about how they talk about all types of migrations were push and pull factors. Mm-hmm. And often there's like, an emphasis of like, oh, black people were seeking better opportunity in the North and sort of like diluting the emphasis on like the brutality of Jim Crow, of lynching, that the, the violence that people were being subjected to. And, and I think that part is intentionally sort of diluted for, for a reason because people don't wanna talk about it. And so there's a lot of work to be done in our field. Isabel Wilkerson wants to talk about it and she does and the look. People are experiencing, you know, lynchings and just violence and being like, and that being, or seeing that happen to someone else um, in the community, in the neighborhood or whatever, and then being like, the next week they're leaving, uh, you know, being like, okay, I can't let that be me. Let me go and be, see if I can go somewhere where it might be, that where it might be safer for me. Um, or threats of, of violence and, and let me flee before this threat becomes a reality for me um, that came up in the book too. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, even my planning and developing countries class that I took, that was an elective course as well. And I seem to be the only one in the class who was enjoying it. <laughs> it kind of, you know, you get these opportunities in an elective course and then it's incumbent on the students to decide if they're interested in pursuing that topic further and learning more about it. Um, the great migration never came up in my planning program, not once, um, not in my minor when I did the undergrad and not in my master's. So if I hadn't had the opportunity to read this book, that would have been like to further like emphasize, like we're talking about an like estimated 6 million people who migrated during this time period. Like arguably, I think it, like potentially the, the the biggest like migration in, in the United States history. Um, and I think it, it is shocking how much it doesn't get more attention, not just in, in planning and in other fields, just as a, this major um, movement. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked before about how uh, right now due to gentrification, due to climate change, due to frequency and intensity of, of d- disasters, how we're also seeing kind of 
um, migrations of people within the United States and people to the United States. And, and so what do you think about maybe what this history means for how we might understand sort of what's happening today? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of things going on today. And so for me, what's interesting in the book, or at least one of the things, there's a lot of interesting things in the book, but one thing is that um, there's also some conversations around those people who stayed. Like, obviously there were plenty of people who did not participate in the migration and who stayed for whatever reasons. And they have conversations about, you know, whether people were happy with their choice to either go or stay. Some people weren't happy with their choice to go. Some people weren't happy with their choice to stay. Some people went back when things changed in the South and moved you know, back to their families when they got older. Um, and right now, when I hear conversations, like I, I, I spoke to somebody about, um, you know, that I, that I work in environmental justice and, you know, asked me what is environmental justice and I'm explaining, you know, communities um, not having equal access to environmental benefits and having disproportionate environmental harms and things like that. And their response was, why don't you just help them get some wealth so they can move somewhere else? Just the most ridiculous. I'm, first of all, you can't just moving. This is not going to be the end all solution. One, because if the issue is underlying that is racism, moving the people will not change the racism. Like they can just experience that elsewhere. Secondly, I think it ignores. I don't really have any sort of like I've moved around a lot. I've lived in eight states in my adult life. I don't really have any tie to one place. Like I can pretty easily just move and be okay with that. Some people have um, emotional bonds to wherever they live. They feel like they have a historical connection, you know, to family or whatever experiences they have. They might have um, a generational home or whatever the case may be that they don't feel comfortable leaving. Some people don't have the resources to leave. I can very easily, if I felt like moving tomorrow, I could sell my house somewhere else. Some people, this is all that they have. They don't feel like they have the emotional strength or the uh, social networks to be elsewhere. A lot of people are asking me, how do you live somewhere where you don't have any family? Because I don't care about that. But a lot of people do. They want to be close to their family. They need that. Family is um, a, is a resource, a form of wealth. You know, this is the only asset I have is my family or my friend network or whatever it might be. Um, and so it's not just so easy, you know, people who, for example, still live in, uh, in um, New Orleans, even, even following Hurricane Katrina, um, or I used to work in the city of Kinston, people who still were living in the flood prone communities in Kinston, you know, I talked to people who were like, this is literally all that I have. I have this house, I have nothing else. I spoke to a woman who made $253 a month. She's like, I can't live anywhere else if I tried. Mm -hmm. She's like, this is literally, this is, this is it for me. Um, so I think that just being able to understand people's motivations, um, what causes them to move, what causes them to stay and understanding um, their experiences and um, what, you know, what are some of the forces at play that allow people to have mobility while other people don't have mobility are concepts that were relevant during the great migration that are still relevant today. Um, would it be great if everyone had the, the choice uh, to be wherever they wanted to be? Sure. Is that the reality? No. Some people are really tied to where they are for whatever reason. Um, and I think we need to be willing to, to accept that and to acknowledge that. Uh, with this population in particular. I mean, obviously there are some people who are just wealthy and making poor decisions to build a beach house 
in an area that's not uh, suitable for that. Um, but other people, their communities were formed in areas that weren't suitable and now they don't have the resources or whatever it might be, or they have some sort of, like I said, emotional connection to that place now that is too, you can't just reverse. Should that community have been built there in the first place? No, but were there systems that caused that community to be built there? Yes, and we can't ignore that now. We have to acknowledge that now. I think that is so beautifully put. I think there's a couple things I wanna lift up in what you said, because I think it's worth repeating. I think, you know, we're talking about the Great Migration and we could we can even contextualize the Great Migration in a broader history of um, Black people moving, whether due to being forced to move, due to displacement of, you know, even now gentrification is another example of sort of in some ways like a forced migration for a lot of people who are priced out of their neighborhoods or they're evicted uh, from their housing and, and are kind of moving away from places where they might have a strong connection to. And I think that's often lost on people. And I know a lot of people in the field of black geographies talk about this idea that black people are almost placeless or don't have these deep attachments and ties to place due to histories of dispossession and displacement or not being able to own property. But that doesn't mean that people don't have these deep and enduring connections to a place. And there's often a, a strong emphasis on moving to opportunity and that the solution for people who are living in concentrated poverty or like you said, living in, in places that um, experience a lot of pollution or other forms of sort of environmental contamination to sort of move people away and ignore the ties that people have, the meanings that people have in a particular place. And I think a step in the right direction would be to really try to understand and center people's desires as much as possible. And that as planners, we have a responsibility to really try to center what people want for themselves and for the future of their communities and to it's, it's tricky because on the one hand, I want to say that planners should help facilitate communities to be agents, agents of change in their own development. But even in, in that framing, it's still, the planner still has this power. It's just that we have this power and we're deciding to use our power to support communities to sort of guide their own future rather than how planners typically operate, which is a sort of plan for the future of communities with little or no input from those communities. And I and so it's like, on the one hand, more community engagement and more sort of enabling communities to take leadership in, in planning and development processes is like a step in the right direction. But ultimately, at least in my view, like we have, I think we have to move towards communities sort of being able to really be self-determining in the sense that it's like, we communities don't have to ask or hope that planners sort of do the right thing, but that, through the process of organizing and building power are really able to sort of demand and command resources and control over decision-making. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like. I, I take inspiration from a lot of social movements and a lot of organizing that's happening here in Buffalo and around the country where communities are sort of not waiting on a, a city planning process that they hope to be engaged in, but even outside of those sort of officially sanctioned planning processes are sort of developing their own ways of setting their own agendas for their future, what they wanna see engaging in their own visioning processes and sort of not waiting and hoping for the city to sort of 
take interest. But if and when the city does take interest, communities are prepared because they've gone through their own sort of autonomous process of what do we want for the future of our neighborhood, of our community, and they have that vision. And then they're prepared when an opportunity comes or someone is interested, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I hope that for people. I hope that people do come together and, and come up with their own visioning. Um, in my work, I've been that person who's like, you tell me. <laughs> like, I'm like, how I like to frame it is that I'm just leveraging my education and experience to get what you want for your own community. I'm like, I'm not coming in here with my own ideas. You need to tell me what your ideas are. And then I will just leverage my experience to help you get that idea. Like, I'm not trying to impose anything on you. And I've worked with people and quit jobs with people who had different, you know, we need to have our own, you know, we know what's best. And I'm like, you would be surprised. People know what they want for their community most more times than not. Mm -hmm. um, people have their own ideas. We don't need to come in with ideas. And it and it fosters poor relationships when you do that. Uh, it, it doesn't help anything. Now, if I genuinely came to a group who was kind of like, we're really not sure, we really do want your guidance on this, then maybe at that point, I would try to start to brainstorm mm -hmm. with them together. But I wouldn't come with that ahead of time. Like, I am going to come with the assumption that you live here and you know what's best more so than I do and really trying to democratize the whole process and trying to even out the systems of power such that there is no person who is more important than somebody else in the room. Everybody is equally important. Everybody's knowledge and experience is equally valid and approaching it from that perspective um, I think it would be a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful world if communities just collected amongst themselves and, and had their own agendas and then just raised those more often. It happens sometimes, but not as often as I really wish it should or did. And I think, I think on that point, like these processes take time and often people don't appreciate that. They want to rush to what is the solution? What, what do people want? And like, let's, and just like, what do we do? And it requires a process of building relationships like within communities, between communities and maybe an outside sort of like planning agency or organization that might partner with them. The work of building relationships of uh, repairing trust, of um, trying to form a sense of solidarity that we're actually accountable to each other and that we actually have a shared interest in, in, in helping one another these are processes that take time. And I think too often there's not the resources to support this work. So for example, I don't see like foundations or other entities that are like um, grant making institutions awarding grants just for people to do like a process of engagement. There has to be some sort of del tangible, deliverable uh, product, a plan, a program, but to invest in people being able to just come together, build relationships, um, improve their understanding of, of the conditions in, in a space, there's not as much support for that. And it doesn't, and it's not resource to give it the proper time. That could be years and years of, of that work, um, but it's rarely supported. And if it's not supported, it's really hard for people who are often, especially if you're talking about the most marginalized communities where people are just trying to get by and have to work a lot and maybe don't have as much time to engage in something, if it's not properly resourced and supported, then I think it's really hard to maintain spaces like that. But it's also, I think, really, really important. 
I hope some grant makers are listening right now. I, I see some capacity building grants, but to your point, typically when I see them, so they have a grant period and they're like, it's a year, maybe two, mm-hmm. but like that work could take a decade. <laughs> and so if you're doing capacity building for a year or two and wanting to see what you can do in the short term, it's not necessarily supporting that. Another thing is that it's typically like, they will grant that money to a 501c3 or to a nonprofit or sorry, to a, a government, but not just to a neighborhood, mm-hmm. like a neighborhood association, a group of citizens. Um, you have to form a whole organization to have access to that. And I think that continues to leave power in the hands of those who already have it. Um, or you end up with people who form a 501c3 just because they feel like they have to. And then a couple years later, it's a dud instead of just you know, not putting that barrier in place and making people and putting people in a position to, you know, spend money getting certified and doing all of this or whatever. And then it just fizzles out. Um, so just supporting communities to just do the work. And how does, how do you, how do you have a model for that? Cause I'm sure people want to have systems of accountability and how, then who can you come to if they don't, you know, do whatever. But um, is that a way of thinking that we need to maintain? I don't know. Maybe we don't need to think like that. Who knows? Yeah, I don't have the answers, and I don't think people have to have to have to have all the answers. I think people do have to have the space and resources to try to work through these things together. I think it's really about creating spaces for organizing and collective action where people can just come together and decide, like how how do we want to organize ourselves? How do yeah, like you said, build structures of accountability. And I think a lot of that is is engaging in a lot of little experiments to see what that can look like. Um, so, so does, does, does do Black geographies and Black spatial agency get at those notions that you just referenced? I think it can. I think, I think what I appreciate about the field of Black geographies is sort of I understand it is it creates, it, it broadens our existing frameworks for how we often are sort of, how we're often trained to sort of see a space and often see in particular black spaces and places through a deficit lens where we see like what is missing, what is lacking, what is needed. And in my mind, black geographies provides a lot of like conceptual tools to sort of change how we see places to instead start with like assets rather than um, deficiencies to sort of really center people's desires, like as you were talking about before, people's meanings, relationships, social ties to a place, to really put those at the foreground and really and center lived experience and center desire in a way that our existing frameworks don't allow for. So like in planning, you know, we are often trained to make a, you know, look at census data or other types of uh, quantitative data sources, make a bunch of maps. And so, you know, <laughs> These are planning jokes. It's not a joke. It's just funny. (laughs) Um, And that already limits what we sort of, how we see places. We see places as like census tracts and often with a bunch of points and we say like, well, where, where's the green space? Where are the, the supermarkets? And so it's like, we're already sort of trained to look at places in those ways. And this is just a different way of seeing and understanding place. And it's also a way that understands I think time in a really interesting way where when you're looking at a place in the present, you're seeing the the past, the present and the future at the same time, where it's a much more layered understanding of like 
really wanting to understand the process by which a place came to be, which again calls attention to history, which is what we're talking about here. And so for me, I just, I appreciate um, Black geographies as sort of like a, a way to, to see places differently. But how about you? What is what does the field of Black geographies mean for you and your work? Yeah, I'm just, for me, I'm just interested in the Afrocentricity of it all, you know, um, about understanding, about not placing Black folks at the margins, about not placing Black folks' ideas at the margins, about not placing Black folks' needs at the margins, and really allowing all of that to be central to what we do um, and how we operate. And um, I just think that there's also a lot to be said about having independent Black communities. I know that it sounds a lot like segregation, <laughs> but I think that the ways that, that that didn't involve agency. And when I think about independent Black spaces, I think about agency, mm -hmm. um, about it being a fruitful space to thrive in a space that was chosen in a space that is abundant um, in a way that we don't see. Uh, and there are so many communities and families and just people now who are homesteading and um, you know, trying to get land and, and do things and create safe spaces in ways that um, are not popular, or are not normalized, that that should be, and that um, could really be beneficial to future generations and to their experiences and to their mental health. And so, yeah, to me, I, it's just, to me, it's, it's just censoring Black people and um, it's, it's Black love and it's um, choice and happiness and all of the positivity that, that can come with being in a space and really having the ability to feel and truly be safe in that space and to examine um, communities and spaces and what does it take to get to that point and what does it take to to continue that um into the future and um and having those conversations and um being willing to let it be radical All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed their conversation. I know I learned a lot from listening to them. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org and click the donate button and support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to all past episodes. This Agents of Change podcast was recorded and produced by Anjali Hall and Tatiana Tots height edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seo. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Our team would like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. 
Join us next time when senior fellows Gavin Rain and Lorraine Vélez Torres talk with Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Diaz, an associate professor and vice chair at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health, about his infectious disease work and community-focused research approach. Have a great week, folks. Thank you.